0: Hey guys, this is Craig from the Pacific War Channel, and before I let you listen to this podcast, I just want to acknowledge this podcast was originally on my Patreon account. It is a four-part series on General Kanji Ishiwara. It has become quite popular, so I asked my patrons if it would be alright to release it on Spotify and YouTube, kind of as a teaser to entice some of you to come over to the Patreon. Over on my Patreon, there are exclusive podcasts. Early access to all of my content, privileges like voting rights on the next subjects I will tackle, live hangouts, your wonderful names in the end credits of my episodes on YouTube, and a lot more. So if you really like the channel and the work I do at other places like Kings and Generals, please give my Patreon a look. Hey guys, before you listen to this one, do realize this is actually part 2 of an ongoing series I'm doing on General Kanji Ishiwara. So you know, if you like things in chronological order, well, I do recommend listening to part one before this one. But if you don't care about that kind of stuff, then hell, enjoy. This episode is General Kanji Ishiwara part two, how to build a puppet state. The last time we spoke, Ishiwara had been spending considerable amounts of time with the Kwangtung army staff trying to figure out a way to push the envelope on seizing Manchuria. Ishiwara and his like-minded colleagues had tried just about everything to persuade the Imperial Japanese Army High Command to initiate a course of action. But every time, the message they received was this. Wait. Wait until next year. We can't do this at this time. Well, in 1931, Ishiwara and Itagaki organized the last major expedition into northern Manchuria to get the newest recruited Kwangtung officers up to speed and ready for some plans they had been cooking up. Captain Nakamura Shintaro disappeared on the way back to Port Arthur, however. The Kuangtang officers took the initiative, one could call it, to get the Chinese military to help investigate the Nakamura disappearance. When Tokyo HQ got a whiff of this, they dispatched a telegram immediately demanding the Kuangtang officers get their men back and not use the Nakamura incident as a way of, quote, solving the Manchurian problem. For Ishiwara, this was the last straw. He doubled down. He pushed for a plot to provoke military conflict outside of Mukden. As he wrote in an almost Masonic Nityanen conviction, I will be the pillar of Japan. I will be the eyes of Japan. I will be the great vessel of Japan. During the last hectic weeks, General Hanjo Shigeru arrived to take command of the Kwangtung army. And there is no solid evidence Ishiwada and his radical group had disclosed their plans to him. However, when everything began to move into motion, Hanzhou agreed to Ishiwada's military solution for the Manchurian problem, it seems. On september eighteenth of nineteen thirty one, a bomb was planted by the Kuangtung Army upon the South Manchurian railway tracks at Yao Chao there was an explosion, and the Kuangtung army immediately claimed it to be a Chinese plot, and they moved with skill and precision to overrun the Peitain barracks. General Hanjo's first reaction was hesitation, but then he committed additional units to aid the radicals, and upon seeing the chaos unfold, he ordered the seizure of all of Mukden in the process. Investigators would find the actions of Hanjo over the course of the next few days to be quite indecisive. At first, he seemed to be attempting to localize the incident, but then, likely as a result of Ishiwara and Itagaki pressuring him, he relented to ordering a general assault on all Chinese positions within the area. Thus, what was originally an isolated incident transformed into a major offensive, and that major offensive was largely directed by two of Hanjo's subordinates, as you may guess it is Ishiwara and Itagaki. Now after the bomb explosion, the next 10 days saw southern and central Manchuria suddenly under the control of the Kwangtung army. Itagaki as a senior staff officer and full colonel was technically Ishiwata's superior, but for the next 4 months it appears Ishiwata was the main driver behind the military actions. Itagaki was quoted to say to a friend during the offensive, Never mind Hanjo. it's Ishiwata's war. And indeed, being so far from Tokyo HQ's control, it really was Ishiwada's war. Tokyo dispatched official orders on September the 19th opposing the offensive, despite a lot of sympathy for the cause amongst some high-ranking commanders. Ishiwada and Itagaki had been planning this for months. They were willing to risk it all. So they disobeyed and carried on. Ishiwada began first by coercing Honjo for reinforcements and freedom to take initiative as he was quoted asking, to pursue actively the security and order of all of Manchuria. Now, obviously, Ishiwara and Itagaki wanted to expand the offensive through the official means first most, but they definitely went around the official channels as well. One devious method they employed was to create chaos for the civilians in the Manchurian cities, thus increasing the need for better security for the Japanese residents there. This would allow the Kwantung army troops to deploy past their set perimeters. Immediately after what is now called the Mukden incident, military agents were dispatched to Kirin to create some chaos within the city. Reports of incidents from Kirin began to pour into the Kwantung army HQ alongside Ishiwara demanding Honjo dispatch forces to Kirin to protect Japanese residents there. In terms of the war in Europe, for example, during World War II, Think about the Sudetenland. Hitler argued that they had to go into the parts of Czechoslovakia to protect the German population inhabiting the Sudetenland. Or hell, if you want a more modern example, look at the current war in Ukraine. Yes, the false flag tactic and approach of saying parts of your population are amongst another nation has been used quite frequently in history. But actually... Ishiwata and his attempts to invade all of Manchuria is largely where it became popular. And it might surprise, or might not surprise some of you to know, it is what gave Hitler some ideas on how to provide a rationale for taking Poland and Czechoslovakia. Because the invasion of Poland was actually also a false flag operation. Now while all of this was going on, Ishiwata advocated for Honjo to demand reinforcements from the Korea army but Hanjo was unwilling to go that far. It seems Ishiwata feared missing a golden opportunity, and he chose another course of action. On the night of the 20th, he gathered together a bunch of younger Kwangtung army officers, such as Itagaki's assistant, Captain Katakura Tadashi, and he told them, I can't do anything more to budge the commander, and so I'm giving up my responsibilities for the direction of operations. Katakura, you take over. Well, it seems this little ploy had the intended effect, as all of the young officers immediately began pressuring Hanjo to support Ishiwada's demands to advance upon Kirin. Many of them threatened to resign. After several hours of officers' nagging, Hanjo relented and authorized the dispatch of troops. The operation against Kirin was carried out in lightning fast speed. Ishiwara directed the bulk of the 2nd Division led by General Tae to rush over to Kinum by rail. They entered the city without firing a single shot, and they forced the local Chinese commander to proclaim the independence of the province from Jiang Shiriang's regime. Within hours after this, the Korea army responded to an aid request sent out by the Kwangtung army staff on September the 21st and began moving into Manchuria. Within only 48 hours, the Japanese military had seized Kirin, which lay outside the Kwangtung operational zone, and the Korea army was invading Manchuria without any formal approval from Tokyo. Military discipline thus had been shattered. Chief of Staff Kanaya Hanzo had issued specific orders to limit the scope of the Kwangtung army operations and entrusted discretionary authority to the field commanders for certain emergency situations usually of a local nature. The Kinn expedition did not exactly fall within any of these boundaries. Bolstered by their success, Ishiwara and Itagaki followed up the Qin operation by pressuring for an advance upon Harbin. As you might recall from the previous episode, the entire idea of taking Manchuria was built upon speed and precision. The kwangtung army had tiny, insignificant forces compared to the immediate Chinese forces in Manchuria. However, here they were blocked by directives sent from Tokyo HQ which forbid the movement of Kwangtung troops beyond the South Manchurian Railway. So up to this point they had limited their actions along those margins. Ishiwara attempted arguing something on a more political line. He argued Japan should aid Manchurian independence and he sent the idea straight to Tokyo's central headquarters. In a rather sharp rebuff on October the 3rd, Tokyo HQ affirmed its opposition to expanding the hostilities and rejected the whole political idea. With a hard no from Tokyo HQ, the Quangtum radicals thought the only course of action was to cause even more chaos to force the issue. Ishiwara took the lead yet again, trying to toss Tokyo HQ off balance. Ishiwara personally went out on October the 8th, dressed in military pilot gear and slipped into one of five Chinese aircraft that had been seized at Mukden's airfield. He then personally led a raid, though later in life, such as at the Tokyo war crimes trial, he would argue the flight was supposed to be just a reconnaissance of enemy activities at Xinchao. As he asserted, it was only at the very last minute some intelligence sprang up that anti-aircraft guns had been installed at Xinchao, and thus the Kuangtung army commander had given him permission to neutralize them if he was fired upon. Well, would you know it? Ishiwata stated that he and the four other aircraft accompanying him were indeed fired upon. Go figure. And thus they dropped around 75 bombs on Xinchao. Yes, it was quite the course of events occurring. As you might guess, more contemporary accounts would indicate this was a premeditated effort designed to freak out Tokyo. The raid against Jinchau did indeed freak out Tokyo. The staff there began to fear the West would begin tossing condemnation upon them. Tokyo High Command was in a rather bad spot. They felt obliged to back up the Kwangtung army publicly by issuing post-facto approval of many of the chaotic attacks. But internally, they were really pissed off. Major Endo Saburo of the Intelligence Division was sent to Manchuria to investigate the Chinchiao situation. Saburo said upon asking Ishiwara what had occurred, Ishiwara responded that he had acted under the principle of field initiative, and that was the reason why he never informed Tokyo of the advance. Saburo also noted the manner in which he spoke to him indicated that Saburo alongside the Intelligence Division should mind their own F-word business. Saburo also found out that there were murmurs in Manchuria that if Tokyo High Command did not get on board, the Kwangtung army was prepared to go it alone. It seemed the radical Kwangtung army officers would even go against the Imperial Japanese Army command to get what they wanted. Ishiwara went as far as to send this telegram to Tokyo. For the sake of the nation, we are doing our very best in Manchuria. But if the Japanese government constantly interferes, we cannot complete our great work. Then the Kuangtung army will have to come to the point where we will have to break the glorious history of the imperial army and separate ourselves from the empire. If you think that is pretty nuts, A rumor also emerged that Ishiwara and Itagaki were going to use an independent Manchuria as a base to perform a coup d'etat against the Japanese government. To overthrow the capitalists strangling the Japanese people and to establish a national socialist regime built around the emperor. Yes, for those of you who know your 1930s Japanese government by assassination history, you know exactly what this rumor is about. A little something that will occur in 1936. Whether Ishiwara and Itagaki actually intended to do this is unknown, but they certainly put out the word. On October the 18th, War Minister Minamijiro sent a telegram over to the Kwangtung Army, ordering them to cease any and all talk of making Manchuria independent or trying to take control of it. Alongside that, they sent Operation Section Colonel Imamura Hitiyoshi to Manchuria to talk some sense into Ishiwara Nittagaki. They all met at a restaurant in Mukden, where Imamura began explaining the purpose of his mission. But before he could even really begin, Ishiwara blurted out, What's the matter? Doesn't Central Headquarters have any backbone? A great way to start a meeting, to be sure. Imamura then tried to explain the situation, but Ishiwara butted in, saying, If we follow the spineless Tokyo approach, we'll never settle the Manchurian problem. Imamura replied to this, Hey, we can't accomplish anything by following the arbitrary decision of field elements, which may create a crisis that will shake the whole army. In such a problem, it is essential for the whole nation to be unified. To this, Ishiwara apparently said really loudly in the restaurant that he was sleepy, rolled over on the tatami, and closed his eyes. Imamura was furious, and yeah, I would be too, and he got up quickly after denouncing his so-called hosts for conducting official I.G. business in a freaking restaurant. And he left. The very next day they met again, probably not in a restaurant, where Ishiwara and Itagaki kept speaking about the necessity to create an independent state, since there was no hope of the Chinese reforming Manchuria as far as they could see it. After Imamura left that meeting, Ishiwara said to Itagaki, Imamura is a fine fellow, but he doesn't understand China. And so, despite the chaos and the mania, the Kuangtong army had been restrained from pursuing any sustained military action through October. Ishiwara, as you would imagine, kept arguing they had to advance into northern Manchuria. In early November, Ishiwara got lucky again, finding pretext in more destroyed railways. The railway bridges over the Nani River south of Qiqihar had allegedly been blown up by hostile Chinese forces. Do you see a reoccurring pattern here? Well, when Japanese engineer units showed up to repair the damaged tracks, they were apparently fired upon by said Chinese horses. And I bet you those Chinese forces spoke with a Japanese accent. To the high officials in Tokyo, it looked like a justifiable reason to take defensive measures. This was also being met while Kwangtung intelligence information was being sent to Tokyo that Chinese forces in northern Manchuria were planning a southward offensive. Ishiwara had provided some rather exaggerated reports to the Japanese public also to manipulate their opinion through the press, which in turn put pressure on Tokyo, into supporting an advance into northern Manchuria. Thus, Tokyo authorized a defensive operation, limited to time and distance aimed at defending the Japanese positions at the Noni River Bridges. Kwangtung army forces began moving north and soon were engaged in heavy fighting around the railway area of Caixin. Ishiwara personally led men during this, and it would actually be the only time in his entire military career he would do so. General Hanzhou rightfully feared the Kwangtung forces were getting out of hand, and of course they, they were and he sent a cable on November the 5th announcing under the Rinsanima provisional mandate the general staff was assuming direct command authority in Manchuria. As you can imagine, Ishiwara and his like-minded Kwangtung officer colleagues were quite furious about this. Hanjo followed this up by stating he would resign if they did not properly comply. But Ishiwara brushed off the provisional mandate stating this that the directive from the chief of staff is just a personal, not an imperial order. No matter how many we get of those, we shouldn't care. We'll just go ahead with our plans. On November the 17th, the Kuangtung army began advancing upon the city of Qichihar, seizing it two days later. Facing yet another terrible situation publicly, the IJ High Command allowed the Kuangtung army to advance upon Qichihar, but then uproar started abroad, forcing them to order the city evacuated. Ishiwala then began a huge argument amongst the staff, stating the evacuation was unacceptable because of the sacrifices the forces had already made. But Hanzhou was standing firm. Then a few days later, Chinese forces began to assemble at Qingzhao, and there had been some conflicts emerging between Japanese and Chinese forces around Tianjin. Well, Li immediately went to work demanding Hanzhou launch an offensive on Xinqiao as a first step of linking up their forces closer to Tianjin, just in case they were overwhelmed over there. To secure the advance, they also asked that the Korea army help them out. Yet again, Tokyo was tossed the hot potato. Tokyo High Command ordered an immediate cease to the offensive and a withdrawal east of the Liao River. The Kwangtung army paused. Not so much because of the order, but because the Korea army refused to participate in the offensive against Xin and they were most definitely needed. Ishiwara faced a dilemma. Without the reinforcements, the entire offensive might be doomed. And then, fatefully, Premier Wakatsuki was outed on December the 11th. War Minister Minami and Chief of Staff Kaneya, two men who both tried to moderate the Kwangtung army's offensives, were replaced by... Ariyaki Seido, an aggressive leader of the Kodoha faction, known in English as the Imperial Way faction. Now, to explain this just a bit, within the Japanese military there were cliques, kind of like the warlord cliques in many ways. They fought to direct the future operations of the IJA, and even the IJN to a certain extent. There were two main ones that influenced the 1930s heavily, the Kodoa and Tosea control faction. The Kodoa were not an organized political party, nor did they have any official standing within the IGA, but they were certainly influential. Kodua members tended to be younger officers in the IGA, particularly those in the Kwangtung army. General Sadio Ariyaki was a founder of the faction, and they were heavily influenced by Bushido, fascism, and the Kokutai. They sought a return to what I would describe as the good old days, as one would say. They saw liberal democracy as a poison hurting Japan. They viewed the capitalists, the industrialists, the very elites of Japan, i.e. the politicians, bureaucrats, and zaibatsu leaders to be responsible for ruining their once great nation. They wanted to see the emperor take back full power in what they would call a Showa restoration. Their number one enemy, as was viewed by most of the Japanese military at the time, by the way, was the USSR and communism as a whole. Thus, they were also by proxy in favor of Hokushinan, the Northern Strike Policy, which was the Japanese theoretical war plan to invade the USSR. Now, I really don't want to go too far down the rabbit hole, but do note, they were counterbalanced by the other faction I had mentioned, the Tosaha faction, who were... As I would put it lightly, more moderate, although not really by any standard. The Tosa faction was headed by Hideki Tojo, famously. And they opposed the Kotaha faction on a few grounds. One important one being, they did not want to cause a violent revolution to usher in the emperor's dominance. They certainly wanted the emperor's dominance, mind you. It's just, the Kodaha faction was willing to literally form a coup d'etat against their government, where the Tosahai were not willing to do so. In essence, what really differentiates the two is the Tosahai were willing to play ball with the so-called demonic bureaucrats and Zaibatsu leaders. And they shared a lot of principles with the Kodoha. Um, but they did not favor the Hoku Shinran strategy. No, instead they adopted the Nanshinran strategy, the Southern Strike Plan, which would see Japan attack Southeast Asia and the resource-rich Dutch East Indies. The very strategy that occurred during World War II. It goes without saying, the Tosahai faction enjoyed better relations with the IJN, and thus, had an edge against the Kodoha faction. So just to place this story within the political realm we are speaking about, these two factions began to compete heavily for dominance 1931 onwards. With Araki Serio and some help from Prince Kanin, who was a Kodoha sympathizer, things dramatically changed in Tokyo Command. All of a sudden, offensive operations against Chinese forces in Manchuria became, quote, bandit suppression campaigns. The Kuangtung army, with Tokyo's full backing, soon pursued all of their military objectives, set out by Ishiwara and Itagaki since September. Xinchao and Shanghai Kuan were seized in early January of 1932. Jichiar, by February and by spring of 1932, Ishiwara argued to the staff that they should complete a full seizure of Manchuria both north and south. In April that year, he laid out Manxuehaiti the program for pacification of Manchuria. This new plan called for the seizure of Heilar in the north because it would, quote, be pivotal to the defense against the USSR. It also called for seizing Jihal province because, quote, it was an important condition to the independence of Manchuria. By the end of the year, Hilar was taken, and in 1933, the Kuangtong army was marching upon Jihal. It goes without saying, Ishiwata was central to the conquest of Manchuria. The Kuangtong army, and the IJ overall, had numerous options laid bare to them to solve the, quote, Manchurian problem. But Ishiwara's primary concern was total control over Manchuria for its resources, strategic position, and to obtain a continental base for his theoretical war in the future against America. To Ishiwara, taking all of Manchuria was necessary to prepare for the final war. Without Ishiwara, it is certain there would have been conflict in Manchuria between Japan and China. But would Japan have outright seized the province? Ishiwara spent years planning and pushing the envelope. When the plan was unleashed, it would turn out Ishiwara and his colleagues did not have a concrete timetable for the conquest, and they lacked quite a few contingency plans. Despite the chaotic nature of it all, the conquest of Manchuria was a stunning success. So much so, Ishiwata said to a friend of his, Satomi Kishio, in 1932, Even if Japan has to face the entire world, she can't be beaten. Ironically, as many of you know, Japan's actions in Manchuria cost her greatly. Japan was now hated by the Chinese. Well, much more so. The West condemned Japan's actions, alongside the USSR. As my professor first taught me in a class about the Pacific War, when I was but a wee lad in his early 20s. It was all about Manchuria. Everything started with Manchuria, and it ended... With Manchuria in 1945. The Manchuria Affair started Japan on an inevitable course to fight the China War, which in turn led her to fight the West. It was a self fulfilling prophecy. The entire affair also brings into question the subject of military discipline. Many look at the Gekukujo variable as an explanation as to how people like Ishiwara and Itagaki got away with all that they did. You know these militarist, hard-type junior officers just running amok, performing some rebellious acts defying their superiors, forcing their hands to become accomplices. Now don't get me wrong, Gikkukujo definitely played a hand, particularly when you look at Ishiwara. But it does not take away from the fact that there simply was a high level of indiscipline within the Japanese army. Ishiwara would have been 100% fully aware what his actions might result in, Hell, the guy right before him, Colonel Komoto Daiseku, is a great example. Ishiwara spent a long time with Komoto, and saw the man's career broken as he was exiled for the Hangutuan incident. But Ishiwara was not only focused on Manchuria, he had a close eye on the political situation in Tokyo. Ishiwara knew the 1931 cabinet was crumbling. He knew certain high officials like Araki Sadio were in Fast-track positions for promotions, and their sympathies were with his cause. Ishiwata was betting. Certain sympathizers, such as the Kodaha faction-aligned ones, would take seats of power, necessary to help push his cause. His gamble more than paid off. All of the main actors in the Manchurian affair were rewarded for their accomplishments. Ishiwata received the Order of the Golden Kite 3rd Class, for example. More importantly, he returned to Japan as a rock star hero. The younger IJ officers were enthralled by him. Ironically, Ishiwata had fostered indiscipline within the army, more so. And when he would go up the ladder, becoming a member of the Tokyo staff, it would actually bite him right in the ass. Now, Ishiwata's dream of taking control over Manchuria was almost purely a means to an end, i.e. to obtain resources and a strategic position to face America. Once Manchuria was under their control, Ishiwata directed his attention towards another goal aside from this, that of racial cooperation amongst the Asian peoples. Manchukuo, or rather Ishiwada's view of what it could be, was a springboard of his vision for an East Asian League, something that had a firm basis in his final war theory. During Ishiwata's tour of Manchuria in 1932, this pan-Asian idea of what Manchukuo could be is what set him apart from many of his Kwangtung army colleagues. It also marked him to be a very unorthodox person within the IGA. Manchukuo, as many of you probably know, was a sham puppet state created to legitimize Japan's seizure of Manchuria. The Japanese high command simply sought to use the guise of an indigenous movement for independence to hide the fact that, well, they simply invaded a part of China and they stole it. To do this, they went as far as grabbing the last Qing emperor, Pu Yi, and tossing him upon the throne of the new state of Manchukuo, while they tossed up some principles of racial harmony. For obvious reasons, this was all done. You can't simply control a region full of a population that rightfully hates you without trying to win them over a bit. Now, what the Japanese did have going for them was there did exist some elements in Manchuria who sought independence. This was Manchuria, the heart of Nohachi's Manchu people. Don't get me started on what a Manchu exactly is, by the way. You can listen to the Fallen Rise of China podcast for more of that. The Japanese had a lot to work with. It could be seen as a righteous Qing revival, or simply giving power back to the quote Manchu people. There was also a large presence of Mongolians. And yes, Inner Mongolia would soon come into all of this. Manchuria came into the nationalist fold late, and not exactly willingly. Also, the fear of the USSR was not something Japan had alone. Manchuria had struggled against the USSR for a very long time. There was also, of course, a large Japanese settler population in Manchuria, who obviously welcomed the seizure. The Jiang Shiliang regime was not exactly too, too friendly to the Japanese within the borders, and there was a lot of discrimination measures that had been exacted upon them. When Jiang Shiliang had joined the nationalists, this had basically spelt doom upon them. At some point, they knew they would be kicked out. While the offensive was in full swing, Ishiwara Nitagaki met with other influential Kwantung officers to figure out how they could exert control over Manchuria. Officer Katakura, Chief of Staff Miyayaki, Dohihara Kenji of the Mukden Special Service Organ they all met, looking over previous plans created by Colonel Dohihara for a multi-racial autonomous nation of Manchuria. It was to be headed by the last Qing Emperor. Puyi, and it needed to possess complete autonomy in internal matters, but its defense and foreign relations would be entrusted to Japan. Ishiwara drafted the plans by September the 22nd, and they were telegrammed to Tokyo on October the 2nd. Tokyo-I command disapproved of the objectives, but nonetheless worked with the Kwangtung army for five months on the creation of a new state based on two major principles. The first was the so-called indigenous movement for Manchurian independence. And the second was the administrative planning for the Kuangtung army to control it all. The Kuangtung army went to work using the traditional structure of Manchuria, local self-governing bodies. They bribed, persuaded, and threatened as many as they could throughout 1931, carefully cultivating a local autonomy movement against the Kuomintang hardliners. One of the first things they created was... Jichi Shidubu, Self-Government Guidance Board, whose organ was responsible for coordinating various regional movements for independence to work with the Kwangtung Army, to, in the words of Miyake, Guide Manchuria to Self-Government. The head of this board was appointed to the Mukden Elder Statesman Yu Changhan, a man educated in Japan, and a previous advisor to Chang so Lin. His board would consist of 20 Japanese and 10 Manchurian members. Such organs were open to Japanese civilians in Manchuria, and they flocked to them to support the so-called multiracial political structure, because they knew that they could bend it to their will. The Kuangtung army began tossing the slogans Racial Harmony, Racial Equality, and the Righteous Way around heavily. The Kuangtung army control over Manchuria was hashed out easily by establishing Japanese advisors over all of the organs who held the ultimate veto authority. They would be appointed at all levels of government. Thus, everything was in reality, Japanese-controlled. Everything was going according to Ishiwata's vision. Or was it? You would think so, and Ishiwata was definitely pushing all of this forward. But... By 1933, he suddenly became a ferocious critic of the very beast he helped create. Well, alright guys, I really hope you liked part two. Not gonna lie, I'm really enjoying this one, and uh, the sources that I'm reading are fantastic. I have a biography on Ishiwara Kanji, and I'm loving this book. Now, if you guys can please spread the word, see if you can get other people to join the Patreon. It helps me immensely. And please let me know in the comments what you think about this series. And honestly, I'm thinking about some things involving YouTube at the moment. Now, while I want to make exclusive content for all of you, I'm wondering, should this series uh, stay exclusive forever? Because there are some rumblings right now. YouTube has opened up a new podcast feature. And as you all know, I work with Kings and Generals for two of their podcasts, and we are currently talking about what we're going to do about this. It might come in the future that I will be part of an ongoing podcast platform on YouTube on behalf of and Generals. But at the same time, I kind of want to put up some of my own podcast stuff on my own channel. So please, if you are listening to this, let me know in the comments if you think it would be all right if in the future I put up this series as kind of the beginnings of my YouTube podcast feature. Because I really think that this is a great little series. But saying all of that, this has been the Pacific War Channel. Love all of you guys. Over and out.